We've been working our way through Second Samuel on Sunday evenings and through the uh, life of David. We've come to the last section of Second Samuel, the last number of chapters, which form a kind of concluding section to the book of Samuel, reflecting on some aspects of what we've been thinking of in David's life. And um, I want this evening to look at uh, chapter 24. You'll find it on page 332 of the copies of the Bible that's in the pew, 332, and beginning to read at verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aror, south of the town of the gorge, and then went through Gad and on to Jazer. They went to Gilead and the region of Tatim Hodshi and on to Dan Jan and round towards Sidon. Then they went toward the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king in Israel. There were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. The book of Chronicles at this point, which records the same thing, has an interesting little note. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you to take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. <coughs> Excuse me. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. 
When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. But these are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Aruna looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered. So I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Haruna said to David, Let my Lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Haruna gives all this to the king. Haruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist upon paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. And Chronicles tells us that David in addition paid 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord and there sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. And as 1 Chronicles 22 says, Then David said, The house of the Lord God is to be here and also the altar of burnt offering for Israel. It's a very interesting passage of scripture. I'm sure as you hear it read, there's a myriad of questions that come to your mind about what's going on in this particular passage of of scripture. If I read at the beginning the opening verse of 1 Chronicles chapter 21, you might have been even more confused. Because there it says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. It raises lots of questions. What's going on here? Well, I don't want us to get stuck on verse 1. Um, I've noted as we've worked our way through Second Samuel that there are a whole range of commentators who write on this and they disagree on most things. But interestingly, most of them take the same view on verse 1 of Second Samuel 24. And basically what they say is God is angry. And he's angry, it would appear, not just with David. We don't really know why. And that's that. God incites the census, which will bring punishment. Is this fair? Like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart that brings punishment in Egypt. And most of them agree. We do not know the ways of God. But they all point out this. In David's world, and the world of the writer, there were no secondary causes. God is the only cause. Just like the story of Job. All the things that happened to Job only happened because God gives permission. So the writer isn't interested in the dilemmas that you and I have over the introduction to this chapter. If he had known how we would read it, if he was here with us this evening, he would no doubt explain, but he didn't, and he isn't, and that's it. 
In fact, in this chapter, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that we're not told. What exactly was wrong with taking the census? The text doesn't say, and you don't get an awful lot of help from other passages of Scripture, because there are times when it was appropriate to do it, and times when it was inappropriate. But being at heart a traditionalist, I'm going to work on a fairly traditional understanding of the text And while some refuse to speculate, I reckon that the structure of the whole section, as you see it on the screen here, gives us the clue, in fact makes it pretty obvious what's going on here and what the problem is. You may remember this if you were with us last week. These chapters at the end of 2 Samuel are arranged together not as a, a sort of bucket in which you throw all the bits that you'd no other place for. They're very carefully and deliberately constructed together for a purpose. And this kind of thing was not uncommon, uh, is not uncommon throughout the Old Testament where the writer builds up a structure within the text which gives the clue to why the text is shaped the way it is. Think, about, think of it like maybe going up a set of steps or a set of stairs and then down the other side. And the idea is that you go up one way and you come down the opposite way and you see the parallels as you go up and you come down. And that's the idea here. That we have Saul's murder of the Gibeonites which opens this whole section for us. Uh, in chapter 21 we have a record immediately after that of David's battles and some of the great heroes and then last week we were looking at uh, 22, the song of David the equivalent to Psalm 18 the whole chapter about that we looked then at the first part of chapter 23 which was the song at the end of David's reign 22 being a song from the beginning of David's reign and now we're going to repeat our way. So last week we looked at what comes in the middle and the way in which they're set over against one another. This great psalm of praise at the beginning of his reign. This very short reflection at the end of his reign. A very different man, very different experience. And then you can see that we come out exactly the same way. With just more information about battles and great heroes. And then we come to David's sin. Because we start with Saul's and we end with David's. And that's what the writer is trying to do here. He's trying to draw attention to the fact that there was a time when Saul broke the terms of a covenant that had been made with a community of people called the Gibeonites. And here what we see this evening is David breaking the terms of a covenant that he made not with people but with God. So it's not the chronological position of the story and where it should fit back into the rest of David's life that is important. It's where it is in this section that is important. Over and against, a murder image, if you like, of the sin that we see uh, described for us as the sin of Saul. Uh, We also see the sin of David, and there is much for us to learn in this passage. If Saul sinned in breaking the terms of the covenant with the Gibeonites, David is sinning in breaking with the terms of the covenant God made with him, and he made with God. What David did in the census would appear to have been wrong because the implication is that it was an act of gross pride. It was a kind of reneging on the commitment to give God the glory as the sole basis of his strength and success. We saw this last week. After the establishment of his throne, he gave all the glory to God in that great psalm of praise, which is chapter 22, which we took time to work our way through. However, as we know for different reasons, clearly at some later stage, God was taking a back seat in David's thinking. It may have been around the time of when he stayed at home, 
and committed adultery with Bathsheba. There was plenty of arrogance on display at that point in his life. But whenever it occurred, it's the same kind of thing. Here he seems to be wanting to count his strength and count on his strength. So he numbers the fighting men. And the words of Psalm 22 or chapter 22 are coming back to haunt him. In verses 26 to 28 of chapter 22 he says, To the faithful you show yourself faithful. To the blameless you show yourself blameless. To the pure you show yourself pure. But to the crooked you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble. But your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. And that, it seems to me, is essentially what chapter 24 is about. It's God's judgment on David's sin of pride. God puts him and the people in their place. So you think you've got everything stitched up. So you sing songs of praise that tell the world that it's only through my power you come into the glory of kingship and power. So I am your strength, your refuge, your saviour. I save you from violent men. But in fact, the message you want to communicate to your people and to the world is, look at what I've got. Look at what I did. The implications of David's pride for the nation is immense. Unfortunately, we will see his grandson Rehoboam take the same kind of approach. And we'll see many more kings of Israel and Judah who do the same. But to keep the balance right and to bring low the haughty, God says, okay, here's your choice. Three years of famine, three months of exile being chased by your enemies, or three days of plague. In one sense, not much of a choice. Each option reminds David of the limitations of human power, a limitation which, remarkably, Joab is more aware of than David in this particular incident. This land, rich and prosperous, can be brought low with famine. This land with its secure borders and one million fighting men can be routed, or at least its king can, as David will discover later anyway when Absalom asserts himself over his father. This land with its power, its wealth and military might can be brought low with disease and plague. Not much of a choice. But David makes a wise choice. Indeed, what is probably more than just a wise choice? Maybe David's choice of, well, whatever, but just don't let me fall into the hands of men because there is at least mercy with God. Maybe this choice symbolizes the sense of David getting his priorities right once again. Maybe this is the first step of repentance. Recognizing that it is better to fall into the hands of God. For at least there, there is mercy. David fears God the most. But in truth, it's because at the end of the day, he trusts God the most. And David's choice in entrusting himself to God's judgment is the first signs of repentance, the first signs of turning around. Be it famine or plague, let it be from the hand of God. And there follows this other remarkable passage in chapter 24 and uh, verse 16. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! 
withdraw your hand. There's a rare insight into the dynamic relationship and function between God and his people. David repents and God relents. He does not relent on the judgment, but on the severity of it. Make of it what you will. But what is clear is that David has learned to fear the Lord over again, and he is right. At least with God, there is mercy. There's a lot to learn there, a lot to think about. What about our attitudes? I couldn't help thinking of the passage in James' letter to the churches, in chapter 4, in verses 13 to 16. This is what he says. Now listen you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not not even know what will happen to tomorrow. What is your life? You're like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Before we're too quick to judge David about the folly of what he did, even when those closest to him counseled him against it, let's judge our own hearts. What mad folly is there within us that makes us a better judge than God? What mad folly is there in us that allows us to publicly bear witness to what we believe about God and his grace in Jesus Christ and then go out and live our lives as if it actually didn't matter or make any difference whatsoever? Oh, it's good to have vision, it's good to have ambition, it's good to have plans. But it's bad to proudly discount God from the past, the present, or the future in our lives. There's much to learn, and much more I'm sure to reflect on in this passage. But actually this passage isn't just about judgment, and judgment on pride. This passage is also about the redemption that comes from God, even in the midst of human sin. Because the whole episode of what happens next at the threshing floor is historically very important. This is the occasion on which the site for the temple, which David is not going to be permitted to build but is going to lay all the provision for, this is the occasion on which the site for the temple is identified and purchased. It's not just any old site. It's a site to which David has to come in repentance. A site to which David comes to offer burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And what we see happening on this site, this threshing floor which he buys, is that this place of rebellion, Jerusalem, becomes a place of reconciliation. This place of disgrace becomes a place of fellowship. This place of sin becomes a place of forgiveness. This place of judgment becomes a place where wrath is turned away, where the sword of the angel is stayed and mercy flows. I hardly need to spell out the significance for us at this service this evening. Spread here is the Lord's table, bread and wine. It takes us back to the fellowship meal Jesus shared with his disciples. It takes us back to the cross where his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. This is our threshing floor. 
Here at this table, pride meets its just judgment. Here at this place, judgment is put on hold and mercy flows. Here at this place, fellowship is restored and reconciliation is celebrated. What we see played out in the life of David is a cameo of our own lives and our own relationship with God. And the whole structure of the gospel that was to become clear in the person of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection is laid out for us in this final story of 2 Samuel. I think the best way to conclude this sermon is to allow the writer of the book of Hebrews to have the last word. So much of the text of Hebrews is a reflection upon the way God works with his people and the lessons to be learned from the Old Testament scriptures by us as Christians. So let me read some passages to you. The first comes from Hebrews 3, 12 to 14. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. And then in Hebrews 4, 12 to 13, we read these words, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so in Hebrews 10 verses 5 to 10 we read, Therefore when Christ came into the world he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so as it says in verses 19 to 25 of Hebrews 10, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching.